Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Geek Warning from the Escape Collective. I'm James Huang, and I'm joined today by tech editor Dave Roman, Sydney in Australia. Hi, Dave. Hello. We also have fellow tech ace Ronan McLaughlin. Hi, Ronan. Hello. Uh, we're supposed to have our own in-house hammer joining us today, Escape Collective Big G's Kaylee Fretz. Um, Kaylee is MIA. I don't know where he is right now. He has recorded... Uh, I think three other podcast episodes today, however, so he may be podcasted out. So maybe he'll be joining us. Maybe he won't. We'll see. Anyway, uh, Ronan, you are went on a little bike ride this weekend, huh? Uh, yeah, we actually we we talked about it on the placeholder podcast today, also. So I kind of feel like I'm repeating myself a bit. Uh, I'm blowing my own trumpet, which I do not enjoy doing, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I I cycled the length of Ireland uh, in what should be ratified pretty soon as a new record time. Um, 568 kilometers in 15 hours and 30 minutes. Well, 15 hours and 6 if you don't include the stops. And I hadn't planned to stop, but yeah, the conditions got the better of me. Have, have you thought, had you thought about going the short way? Uh, I thought I thought about the route a lot. There's actually there's an article up on the website now um, detailing all the sort of optimizing that I, I tried to do for this uh, ride, and the route is the first segment of that article, and it's quite lengthy. All the detail that I went into in trying to optimize the route. Um, so yeah, that that was the shortest and the flattest I could come up with. Uh, what is the sock of choice for 15 hours in a time trial position? The sock of choice. Yeah. Uh, I was a little bit, uh, so I, so I, as part of this sort of record attempt, I've, I've wanted to break the record for a long time, but, uh, I, when I decided I was going to do it, um, well, I'll let you on a little sort of loophole that I find the regulations here. Not you really didn't loophole, wear socks. It, I, I am really getting down a rabbit hole here at the moment. I'm getting sidetracked <laughs> pretty bad, but I'll get to your sock question in a second. Uh, basically the rules say that you have to nominate your date three weeks in advance um and your exact starting time uh so basically you can't just wait for a tail one but it's while it does say you can only nominate two routes per notification uh, and you email in notifications uh and i think that's to allow you to select either south to north or north to south on this one day it doesn't say how many notifications you could give so i basically periodically throughout the year once a month kind of uh basically sent the official basically sent Cycling Ireland to officiate these attempts uh, a notification for every Saturday and Sunday of the following month and pretty much every <laughs> time and every direction. Uh, and that, that was that was a bit laborious, but uh, it meant that I still kind of had to pick of the weather. Um, but um, what, what I wanted to do when I decided I was going to do it last weekend um, was sort of raise some awareness around food allergies because my daughter has a severe nut allergy. Uh, and a raw egg allergy also um and as part of that i sort of adopted uh, an american foundation called red sneakers for oakley Um oakley was a young kid who tragically lost his life after suffering an allergic reaction um, and they uh, oakley he loved red sneakers apparently and in his honor and sort of to raise awareness around food allergies they set up International Red Sneakers Day, uh, which I missed a few uh, weeks back, but I decided, well, I would have my own International Red Sneakers Day and wear red shoes for this attempt at the weekend. And hopefully anybody who hears this message and ever sees a photo of me in that ride will piece the red 
shoes together with that awareness campaign. Uh, so that meant that I couldn't wear overshoes, obviously. And so I had to wear aero socks. Back to your sock question. Uh, so, um, and then when I got down there on some Saturday night, got up on Sunday morning, 4 a.m., it was absolutely pouring down with rain. I thought, well, I'll wear these black Castelli aero socks that I have. And when I put them on, I realized they must be made for Remco Evenepoel because they are very, very short. And I wanted to maximize the sock height to try and grab back some of those aero gains. And so instead, I decided to wear, you remember those thousand euro socks that uh, Anamik van Vluten wore in the World Championships last year? How can year? we forget them? Yeah, how can we forget them? Well, I I was uh, lucky enough to get a pair of those socks. I did not pay a thousand euro, but I also didn't go to the wind tunnel and didn't get them custom made. Uh, so I think I, th- I think basically I just got the 40 euro socks that they sell that are pretty much identical. Um, but somebody tumble dried them the very first time I wore them in the Ross uh, and melted, not me, somebody else who ever washed our kit that night, uh, melted all of this. It was Johnny, wasn't it? Of them. It wasn't even Johnny. I can't blame Johnny oh, okay. for this one. All right. So they were sort of already destroyed. So I thought, well, they are white. They're going to get destroyed in the rain. They're already destroyed. I'll wear those. And gotcha. can't believe how long it took me to answer that question. I, I can't believe that a simple question about socks managed you to also answer my next question, which is what the cause was. So anyway, oh, yes. we've, we've done that, so we can move on. Good stuff. <laughs> Thank you. Ron, I'm very curious. So I don't know if you remember that the uh, that superhero character, The Flash, but uh, in the old comics, if I remember correctly, it was like his boots or something had like little wings on the back of them. Okay. Has anyone ever tried a little extension like that in the wind tunnel for a cycling sock to see if that would work? Uh, I know, I'm sure. I'm sure it, it wouldn't be UCI legal, but it might look cool. I'm pretty sure. Like, if you think of ski or uh, like you know like uh, world record speed ski oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. thing attempts, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. they've started got the same profile going on there, haven't they? And yeah, surely it would it would be. Um, a more aerodynamic solution, definitely, definitely not UCI legal. I don't know of anybody who's tried it in socks. Um, I would love to see it. Um, but what I there's there there are those new triathlon shoes. I think I sent you a link to them about two years ago, James, and they were only in development. Uh, and they've recently been released. Velo Velo Vita, I think they're called, uh, and they have the retention buckle at the back, and it's designed as such that it is sort of a almost like a fairing shape profile off the the heel of the shoe so maybe a similar idea there and there's other shoes that put put like a bow dial at the back of the heel and maybe has similar effect but, but, I, but I want this what you're talking about but they're not shaped like wings they're not flash is it flash or flash garden the, the flash the flash okay mm-hmm. mm. can't can't mm. say i know them. all right well if anyone has some spare time in a wind tunnel and is handy with stitching fashion up some socks for me and let me know because I'm curious. I wonder anyway. if it's like a trademark thing of DC Comics as well. So <laughs> maybe that's why no brands are doing flash-based socks. I'm I'm going to the wind tunnel next week, and I'm I'm willing to infringe some patents to uh, to, to try this out. Mm. Mm. Anyway, okay. Well, <laughs> uh, Dave, now that you're very much back and settled in from the Handmade Bicycle Show Australia, I'm going to return mm. to my usual question for mm. you: What's your latest tool purchase? You know, I've I've been so distracted with uh, taking photos and editing photos of really nice custom bikes that I actually haven't bought a tool in over a week. 
What in over a week? That's got to be some over sort of record. A week, yes. Are you, um, are you sure it's just the distraction? There could be something more serious going on here. To be honest, uh, I've I've looked. I, I just haven't found any that that really sparked the level of interest that they needed to. So, We're, yeah, James, I think Dave has finally he owns all tools. <laughs> No, 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 that's not the no. case. I don't, no, I don't no. think that's possible. Yeah, no. Did, I mean, the last Dave, one we, the last one I bought is a Kickstarter. I'm waiting on it, but it's... Uh, uh, I'm not going to mention it because when I mention tools, there's there's a small number of people that, that just uh, get curious and want to also figure out why I bought the tool, so they order one. Uh, and I'd rather not mention it because I actually genuinely don't think it'll be any good. It just looks like a fun fidget toy. Uh, and I don't want anyone to to buy it off of what they might think is my recommendation when it absolutely isn't. So, uh, but yeah, it's something on Kickstarter and it's something from the UK and it looks like a fidget toy. So maybe some people can figure out which what that is. Mm. Okay, then. Uh mm. In, in a future episode, we'll talk about Dave's lack of fiscal responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, we've got a long list of topics for today's show as usual, including SRAM's new Apex electronic and mechanical 1x12 group sets. Uh, we'll talk about some of the tech we saw at the most recent Mountain Bike World Cup in Lenzerheide, Switzerland. Uh, Common Sols now in the gravel bike market. Uh, we'll dive into some of the gear decisions Ronan made for his little ride down the street this past weekend, aside from socks. Uh, we'll also share some thoughts on the emergence of SRAM's universal derailleur hanger system on drop bar bikes. Um, but before we get too involved with the news, we first want to thank our sponsors for this week's episode, and that would be our Escape Collective members. Uh, because you see, we intentionally do not run any ads on Geek Warning, and so we rely on the contributions of our members to keep this show afloat. Monthly memberships start at just $11.99, or you can save a bit on an annual plan instead. Uh, either way, you get full access to all the content on the site, full commenting capability, opportunities to join in on our occasional live Geek Warning episodes, speaking of which, we got to schedule one of those sometime soon. Uh, and you also get an invitation to our members-only Discord community. Um, but uh, we especially want to give a super, super warm thank you to a few of our lifetime members who each ponied up a pretty big pile of money to help us get Escape Collective off the ground. So shout out today goes to, first of all, 3D printing master Chris Hirschap, legendary Shane Miller of GP Llama, Washington, D.C.-based bike mechanic Gregory Thomas of Precision Bicycle Services, uh, and then a former coworker of mine and a wheel builder extraordinaire, Zach Masick of Z Spokes in Charlotte, Vermont. And last but not least for today, the folks at Prototipo Works in Melbourne, Australia, makers of the most absolutely insanely over-engineered water bottle, cage bolts, valve caps, valve adapters, and threaded plugs that the world has ever seen. Seriously, mm-hmm. they're insane. Anyway, thank you so, so much to our lifetime backers for making this whole thing happen. Thank you. I just I literally just finished up watching a GT, GP Llama video um, on the new Zwift Play buttons things. He he has his hands on them and I find them quite interesting. So uh, a, a set of those are apparently on their way to you now, Ronan. So we should hopefully have some firsthand accounts on that. Uh, a firsthand account of that of our own pretty soon. They do look interesting. I I'm a little disappointed. There's probably some trademark or patent sort of thing issue here um i kind of wish it was shaped more or like the button layout was more like a nintendo controller <laughs> you always have to go back to the uh the gaming consoles hey, every, you time, know, every time we talk about zwift 
<laughs> you know, Zwift is the one who came up with the whole concept of this, like the gamification of bike riding. Like they yeah. were, they were the ones who said it themselves. So I think this does get us a step closer though. Um, I, maybe I've been Googling uh, for cheat codes already uh, based on the controllers. Just I'd be keen to just not have to pedal. Um, you, you, the, the code is uh, body weight divided by two. Uh, I think that's the cheat code. <laughs> Height multiplied by 0.75. Mm. Yeah, right. All right. Well, well all we need is all we need is the uh, the button code for that now, right? <laughs> all right. Anyway, let's get into the news here. So first up, SRAM has just announced a complete revamp of its entry-level Apex groupset, uh, which SRAM says is now focused on gravel riders instead of road riders like Apex has always been in the past. Uh, It moves from an 11-speed format to a 12-speed cassette. Uh, There are both Axis wireless electronic and updated mechanical versions. Uh, No front derailers, no cable-actuated brakes, um, and all things considered, it's actually pretty impressively affordable. Uh, you can get the full details on my article on escapecollective.com right now, but the, uh, the, the TLDR version is the stuff actually seems to work quite well. I don't know. What do you guys think of this? This was not something I, well, I think we all expected that Apex would get a wireless version at some point. I am a little bit surprised, pleasantly surprised, I would, I should say that there's also a 12 speed mechanical one too, though. Uh, yeah, I think it's. Arguably about time, uh, as far as if you look at the mountain bike side of things with Eagle, how how much they've trickled down Eagle over the last few years down to quite entry-level price points, while the, the gravel segments kind of remained... Uh, I'll, I'm going to say they almost ignored it, of how old you know Rival 1 and, and Apex 1 are now, that we're still being specced on bikes, but that 1 by 11 speed with like a an 11 to 42 tooth cassette... Uh, that just felt like a very old group set at this point. So, yeah, I think it's I think it's it's a welcomed addition to the lineup. I think it's it was a little overdue, uh, and I think it's a little bit confusing as well in terms of uh the number of options within across the axis and the the mechanical, which I think we can get to. But there are a lot of options, so I should I should give our listeners a quick rundown. Uh, so you do have Apex Axis Wireless Electronic, uh, and then you have Apex Mechanical. And then within each of those, as I mentioned, it's one by only, but then also uh, 12-speed cassettes. Uh, you can go with either the Explore option. That's what SRAM calls their kind of more gravel-minded gearing. And for, uh, for Apex, that'll be an 1144 cassette. Or you can go super wide range and go with an Eagle setup or what's commonly referred to as a mullet because it's a mountain bike cassette. Um, And then for the Apex range, that is designed to be, uh, I believe it's either an 1150 or an 1152 at the back. And then there's a separate derailleur to go with that. So you can kind of mix and match. You can go with like an Axis Explore or you can go with a mechanical Eagle or vice versa. Um, But because there's also quite a lot of compatibility baked into the system, uh, as usual with SRAM's Axis stuff, you can mix and match pretty much nearly any Axis component at this point now. And then with the mechanical stuff, because uh, all the 12-speed cassette spacing is the same, uh, you can put on one of the nicer cassettes too from another group set if you want, as long as you get the right derailleur matched up to it. Yeah, and for me, that's sort of where the confusing part comes in is that there's a lot of compatibility when we're talking about Axis protocols or the shifter cable pool used in the mechanical 
but the Eagle and the Explorer, the derailers are not cross compatible and they're still using an entirely different chain system. So Explorer is using SRAM's flat top chain. Flat top. With Correct. A, you know, suitable cassette and suitable pulley wheels on the derailleur. And then the Eagle version is using the Eagle, the original Eagle chain. So a much more regular looking 12 speed chain, which again is not really cross compatible with the Explore cassettes and all that. So there, there's kind of like you, you kind of pick one and you almost have to stick with it. It's not like you can jump back and forth so easily between, say, uh, an Eagle cassette and Explore cassette. Just with no, you know, not swapping wheels, it's that's not really uh, on the table here, right? Um, so essentially, what SRAM will say you have to do is you have to match the chain cassette and rear derailleur. Um, I mean, there is some wiggle room around some of that if you're creative, but however, for I would say for most Apex buyers, essentially what you're going to do is always match your chain cassette and rear derailleur. So as long as you do that, you're good to go. Um, with that new 12-speed mechanical shifter, what's interesting, interesting there is that SRAM is, uh, they've switched from, uh, their traditional road cable, uh, cable pull ratio to, uh, the Eagle cable pull ratio, which, so it's exactly the same as what they use on their 12-speed mountain bike stuff. Um, so yeah, you can now use those levers with a, a regular SRAM Eagle mountain bike rear derailleur. Um, you won't have a barrel adjuster built into that one, but you could always just add an inline one and you'll be good to go. Um, but either way, the big thing for me is that the cassette spacing is the same. So there is, to me, the important part is there is there is mix and match compatibility where it counts. Sure. Yeah. But yeah, I'm I'm pretty excited about this because again, like the pricing is pretty pretty good. Uh, I would say it's it's it definitely brings wireless electronic to a new category of riders, I think. Uh, SRAM is anticipating that, um, I mean, they're, they're, they're pretty upfront they're in saying that Apex is going to be predominantly an OEM group set. Like, it's not really going to be expected that many people are going to be buying this stuff aftermarket. Um, and the wireless stuff they're saying is going to be probably on bikes that are costing about 2500 to 4000 US. And then the mechanical stuff will probably show up on bikes uh, as low as about $2,000 US. Um, yeah, so pr- pretty interesting. I mean, I've got a couple couple of short rides on on the stuff, and yeah, it works quite well. I think the, the big thing that jumped out at me, when, and I've only briefly read through your, your draft article at the moment, James, but um, the big thing that jumped out to me was, first of all, the compatibility that you mentioned there, but more so like when we knew there was an or when we sort of thought there was an access group set coming here that uh, you I, I know it was probably always likely it was going to be entirely compatible with other access but i just wondered at this price point was there a risk there was going to be some way of making it non-compatible with the likes of the new wireless blips and that sort of thing and it's just so good to see that actually it is there, there's that compatibility also uh and then for me it, it just looks so good uh in terms of it's clearly recognizable as being from the same family as rival and the new force in terms of the levers uh, which i think was a good thing and then finally what would you say the weight gain was compared to rivals like a hundred grams or something for yeah a it's about i mean group set? yeah i mean rival is already pretty heavy yeah um so it, it is nice that it's kind of only a hundred grams heavier um but what's interesting is that i you know, certainly, you know, I, you, can, you can never completely walk away from your old weight weaning self, right? So um, I was 
it, it's hard for me to ignore how much the lower end SRAM axis uh, road groups weigh. Um, but I actually posed the question of weight versus electronic shifting on our Discord channel to our members. And I have to say that the responses I got from people were pretty overwhelmingly one-sided. Mm-hmm. Um, most of them responded that uh, either they were aware that the stuff was heavier and they didn't care, or they just didn't care at all. Uh, they don't even know what the stuff weighs, and they just be, they just wanted electronic shifting. So, um, you know, SRAM has clearly bet in that direction, and it seems like they've bet correctly. Yeah. The the thing that stood out to me is that, Ron, you said, like, it it looks like Rival. It looks like it belongs. And what stood out to me is that it actually basically is Rival, right? Like, it's it's like the lever is, is effectively a Rival, a Rival body with the Rival internals, and like the shift mechanism and the shift function is basically the same as everything else in the lineup. All that really changes, as far as I'm aware, is is the lever blade, right? Like it's a it's, um, a, it's a cheaper no, lever blade. So I asked Sram about this. So essentially, the reasons why Axis or the reasons why Apex is about 100 grams heavier. So um, yeah, Rival has an aluminum lever blade, um, but in that one, it's forged, I believe. And then in Apex, it's a stamped piece. Mm-hmm. And then likewise, um, like the the parallelogram, the parallelogram links on the Rival rear derailers yeah. are also th- those are also forged aluminum. And then uh, on Apex, they are stamped. Um, it's just mainly stuff like that. It, it yeah. essentially they said that the differences boil down to materials and finishes. Yeah. Um, but functionally, but the and moving components, the yeah, yeah, um, the uh, and, and then like stuff like it. I think they put bushings in the pulley wheels instead of uh, bearings, stuff yeah, like okay. that. Um, but this is one of the things that we've always said was going to be occurring with electronic in general is sort of just the democratization of that shift performance because. Um, I mean, SRAM is very open about the fact that they are using the exact same electronic components across all of the axis drop bar stuff. Um, so the shift performance, as far as I'm concerned, and, and from what I can tell just from brief rides on it, it is identical to the nicer stuff. It's just heavier. Yeah. Yeah. And just going back to the lever look for a second, I think I was more thinking of the mechanical shifters and that's, if you think of the current apex mechanical shifters, they to me they've always looked like they 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 were like an an accident or something. They didn't really look like they were like the the hood and the lever didn't really seem to fit together all that well. Whereas these new ones kind of look like rival mm-hmm. axis shifters, which I think is a good thing at this price point. Yeah, they basically are. Um, I mean, the the texture on the hood is unique to Apex, but um, from what I understand, the hoods themselves, like the the lever shape and everything, it is identical. So those hoods are cross compatible and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it it looks good. I think I I legitimately think SRAM did a very nice job with this stuff. I mean, I'm, I just got my Apex Axis long term sample, um, so we'll see how the stuff holds up over the long run. But overall, my first impressions are really positive. Perhaps so. Perhaps my favorite part is the the new mechanical hydro lever, which they looks said awesome. Yeah, they said was uh, an engineering heavy lift, which aligns with what i'd heard with shimano before which is their mechanical hydraulic disc brake levers are some of the most or are the most complicated component they've ever made uh and and shram sort of backed that up here with with this product uh but yeah what i what i like most is that they've completely redesigned the the brake internals compared to their previous mechanical hydraulic 
and those internals now align with uh, the axis levers. So it's it's kind of the same uh, master cylinder layout that they've that they've got in the axis levers, which is a really welcome change compared to the the wood style screws and banjo fittings that uh, hid underneath the covers of the the previous mechanical hydro levers. Yeah, big big improvement for sure. Um, and the the twelve speed mechanical stuff unfortunately won't be available until about September or so. Um, but uh, I'm actually more eager to try that stuff out than the than the uh, than the access stuff. I mean, again, uh, the access stuff, as as I mentioned before, it seems to be what people are generally more excited about as far as uh, kind of just shifting technology goes in general. But um, I do think the twelve speed mechanical stuff is such a welcome and long overdue improvement. Um, and for sure, there are going to be a lot of people who are just going to want to stick with mechanical for whatever their reasons are, if they're like, you know, going out into the backcountry, whatever, so on and so forth. Um, but certainly as a long time mechanical fan, uh, and I've always liked SRAM double tap stuff. Um, yeah, quite, quite eager to see how the, how the 12 speed mechanical stuff is uh, over the long haul. How's the braking on the new calipers? It's pretty good. Um, I'd say the thing with the old, the old uh, Force One, Rival One, that sort of stuff. Um, the hydraulic stuff in there was old, like really old. It dates back to SRAM's um, more or less original hydraulic design. Uh, it's what they called um, like Hydro R, um, and it is, gosh, it's got to be. 10 plus years old at this mm-hmm. point it has to be it's quite yeah, it's, old. it was basically the same lever that was uh used with the hydraulic rim brakes yeah yeah mm-hmm. exactly so it goes back quite a long way um and the new hydraulic guts are shared with all of the other current generation stuff so uh, there is less dead banded levers for example um and it feels a little bit more responsive um i write this in my article as well i mean as as much as i am pretty impressed with the brake performance overall in terms of just like power and modulation and stuff like that to me they still just don't feel that great like the the response still feels a little to me a little heavy like i to, to, i would prefer like a lighter and snappier brake lever almost kind of more uh, you know dare i say more like cable actuated rim brake sort of thing like with that kind of springiness and light feel like and honestly kind of what shimano was able to do with their hydraulic stuff um so the action's still a little heavy it's, it's almost as if the fluid's like a higher viscosity than it should be even though i know it's not um but uh that's probably my only criticism of it right now um but otherwise it works quite well before we move on um what do you what is everyone's thoughts on the fact that shram seems to just completely ignore slash think that the entry-level road space is effectively dead as they evidently do by the fact that this is a one by only wide range sort of gravel gearing only at the entry level and they don't really seem to have any any real interest in a more road specific version of this um i i know that a lot of people like to stick to ideas that like the bike industry is pushing x and y on people and that sort of thing um to me i see this more as sram just acknowledging that the entry-level road market just isn't really there um for people looking to get into drop bar riding for, like i i have friends who are you know long-time mountain bikers for example who are maybe getting into gravel riding 
for the first time or just kind of getting into drop bar running for the first time. And I can say that there's zero interest on their end for to getting into the road. And these are longtime cyclists otherwise. So if you're looking at people who are just kind of looking to get into drop bar riding in general, I don't see a lot of people getting started or being excited about trying to ride on the road. It just doesn't seem to be there. Is it that? And kind of, as I'm about to say, I kind of feel like I sound a bit dated already, but uh, is it that, or is it that gravel bikes, at least where, where I am here on, on, the, on this part of the, the corner of the, the planet, um, gravel bikes tend to be like an additional bike. They're not, they're not the, you know, you have your road bike or whatever bike you ride, then, you know, you, you want to sort of dabble in gravel. Uh, and typically speaking, you know, customers are on a smaller budget when they're looking for a gravel bike. And, you know, it's usually entry level stuff that is, is on those bikes. Certainly when I bought my first gravel bike, it was, I think, you know, I think that's definitely driving. an aspect that that's true. Um, yeah, especially for the road market that, you know, might only want a gravel bike once a month type thing. I think that that certainly applies, or maybe they're buying a gravel bike as a commuter. Uh, yeah, I, I do think that that's a factor. Um, but I think, like from James's point, the, the the first bike buyer, you know, maybe they're coming from the mountain bike world and want a drop bar bike. Uh, yeah, I mean, they that group of of customers not starting with a road bike anymore. Um, yeah. I think it's also a product of the industry's own making too. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this is, uh, I wrote a column on this subject years ago um, talking about how, how different types of cycling are portrayed in various industry marketing. And um, like on the road, it is just, you know, race, race, suffer, suffer, train, so on and so forth. You know, how hard are you? So on and so forth. Um, the gravel riding marketing is, it's much more casual. Um, yeah, people are portrayed like happy and smiling and like having a good time. Um, if you are looking to just kind of get started on on riding a drop bar bike, I, I don't. It, I think it seems pretty obvious which one of those two worlds seems more appealing from a casual user standpoint, right? Mm. Um, and it's only very recently I feel like that the bike industry is starting to change that tune a little bit. Um, but uh, I mean, that effect has already been cemented pretty hard, I think. Yeah. I think the other thing here is it just, for me, it feels like SRAM's almost willing to let Shimano have whatever is left of this market. Uh, I mean, they could, they could very well be. Yeah. You know, there's, there's talk of Shimano about to update their entry level groups to bring it into the, the queues range of things. And, and that would be a very competitive, uh, a very competitive product that would probably be pretty hard to compete against. So you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all that that Shram's done their research and said, you know, that this entry level road mar- uh, this entry level road market is so small now that it's just, you know, they can have it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I would probably agree with that assessment, and it, it to me, it just seems like a smart business decision, right? Like yeah. if if you know that piece of the pie is pretty small, then why try and fight for it? Just take, just go after another piece of the pie, or go go after the bigger piece of the pie. We mm-hmm. all like pie, more mm-hmm. pie for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of gravel, um, next bit of news that we're going to move into is, a uh, a new entry into the gravel bike market from a company that has not bothered to do drop bar bikes before. And that would be common Sol. Uh, so Dave, you and I both got this press release, uh, I think like early this morning or last night or something like that. What are we looking at? Uh, the three, six, five. 
which is uh yeah common cells first drop bar bike uh designed for use every day based on the name uh and according to them it is uh not like every other gravel bike which <laughs> i love because from everything i can see it's exactly like every other gravel <laughs> bike <laughs> pretty close yeah yeah uh, I'd say the big difference here is Common Cell have actually, and and quite surprisingly, um, stayed on brand. I mean, they're really known as as aluminium specialists, and they really push that. You know, they've ridden where all their competitor brands that they're they're a very uh, popular brand. The gravity in the gravity world in downhill racing, they're an incredible, incredibly popular and and winning brand there. And where pretty much everyone's uh, racing on carbon fiber bikes, they've really stuck to their guns and and stayed with aluminium. Uh, which all along they've they've claimed you know is, is a recyclable material and better for the environment and uh, you know obviously still good enough to perform uh, and yeah this gravel bike what surprised me is that uh, you'd expect to find a carbon fork on the front of it like everyone else and instead they've stuck to aluminium so uh, yeah James what do you th- what do you think there uh, yeah I mean I have to say I was reading through the press release and knowing the way common saw likes to do stuff like again like you said dave i mean they have kind of really hitched their wagon to this whole aluminum thing um and i was just waiting for them to either just skirt the issue altogether or just like quietly tuck in there oh by the way there's a carbon fork in there Mm. so yes i was very surprised to see that there was an aluminum fork on there um i mean more power to them because the the reason why more companies don't use aluminum forks at this point is because, uh, by my understanding, the, the issue is that the industry testing for forks is so rigorous right now. Um, it's kind of hard to pass those tests with an aluminum fork now. And it's a little bit easier to, to get all that stuff done with carbon, considering you can kind of just keep adding more material and still have it be reasonably light. Um, but it's harder to do that with aluminum. So if Common Sol is able to do that, then more power to them. I'm curious what it rides like. Yeah. Yeah, my my initial uh, assumption is that it it'll ride stiffer as a result. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously, until we get on the bike, we we won't know that. But uh, yeah, certainly, as you say, to pass those those tests, you need to add a lot of uh, probably a lot of material to to reinforce that structure. And yeah. the easiest way to do that yeah. is just to make it stronger and stiffer. So yeah. Um, yeah, we'll see. But I think, yeah, geometry wise, I mean, they're definitely going after, they're like many other mountain bike brands that have, uh, introduced a gravel bike in the last 24 months in that, uh, you know, there's, there's modern mountain bike geometry concepts here, uh, longer reach or a stem type type thing. Uh, and I think, yeah, I think they'll, they'll find, uh, enough success with their current customer base, which I think is the general mission with these brands entering the space. Is just yeah, I you think know, so. sell your I existing mean, customer one more bike. Yeah, certainly looking at the promo video, I think they've got a pretty good handle on who their market is. Um, but yeah, like like you were saying, geometry wise, it's about what you'd expect. It's sort of new school, uh, kind of like longer front end, shorter stem, and um, it's designed kind of more for hooning around as opposed to like going fast on like it's, they're they're not billing it as a gravel race bike. Mm-hmm. No way. No. Um, uh, and I can't remember what the pricing is. It's not amazing, but it's not bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I maybe would have hoped it would be a little bit better since Common Sol is a, a consumer direct brand. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm kind of curious to bring one of these in actually mm. because I would be I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of curious to see how much of sort of the the mountain bike DNA they've infused into this thing and kind of what the bike is like. 
I would love to, and I'm just going to say this uh, so that it then potentially happens that we get peer pressured into doing it. I would love to do a um, a a uh, a grass oval uh, test. Um, I don't know what you a cricket ground test. Um, I'm just trying to think of a word that isn't field uh, and grass and, track. A what? A grass track? A grass track test, yes. Um, and <laughs> uh, of the various new mountain bike, gravel bike, mountain bike brand gravel bikes that have been released and then compare them against something like a Cervelo Asparo that we all like uh, as the benchmark. I think this could be a very interesting test. That sounds like a great idea to me. I think what you should do is line up all these bikes. Yeah. In sizes that fit both you and me. Yeah. And we'll time this to coincide with the Australian spring. Okay. And I will fly down there as, as winter is about to hit in Colorado. That sounds very doable. All right. We Perfect. should start talking. Done. Yep. Done. We'll make that happen somehow with our magic pile of money. Um, <laughs> anyway, so that, yeah, the, the, the common solid does look pretty, uh, does look pretty good. I, uh, I'm, I, I'm, again, I'm eager to see one in the flesh. Um, but yeah, pretty, pretty intriguing. I, I think it, it's uh, it's it's an interesting bit to talk about, considering that we were just discussing how uh, the entry level seems to be more inclined to uh, kind of more aiming toward gravel instead of road. Like you don't really see a whole lot of mountain bike companies introducing their first road bike, do we? No, and I don't think we will. Nope. Nope, probably not. Uh, speaking of mountain bikes, though, uh, we just had the second round of the. 2023 season of the UCI uh, World Cup round in um, in Lenzerheide, Switzerland, and a uh, bunch of good racing going on there. Um, we don't need to talk a whole lot about the racing, however, because uh, I'm kind of curious about more of the tech that we saw there. One of those things was um, some new RockShox SID forks that were spotted primarily on the front end of Nino Schurter's bike. Uh, Dave, what did we see there? I was expecting you to throw to Ronan here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, flight attendant. So, I mean, flight attendant is SRAM's uh, automatic electronic suspension, which uh, is, I believe, crank-based in terms of... Does it work off power or cadence? Uh, I'm not even that... Uh, it doesn't really work on power exactly there is a crank sensor mm. uh that's just so to let you know if you're pedaling or not yeah um but it's really not power based it's sort of just it just it needs to know if you're pedaling yeah uh, and then it needs to know if you're going uphill or downhill mm-hmm. and then there are accelerometers so it knows if there are kind of like bump forces at play or like say you're in the air that sort of thing um so there are a bunch of sensors but it's not really power related gotcha so yeah it's uh they've had this out since uh Early last year, I'd say it got released at the previous Sea Otter, uh, and yeah, it, it's exactly what you'd expect of a, an Axis system product, where it has basically the 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 Axis batteries, the same batteries that you'd use on on the rear derailleur. Uh, they're mounted off both the rear shock and the fork. Uh, that rear shock we couldn't see on Nino Shoto's bike because he's on a Scott Spark and it is hidden inside the frame. Uh, but we can assume that it was there because his fork had this uh, very obvious battery on the, the crown of it. Uh, and yeah, it seems, uh, I mean, it had its first win, basically, its first public appearance and, and a win from it. And I think it's pretty interesting tech. I think it's about time 
maybe. Uh, I mean, we've been talking about this for a, a number of years, well before Flight Attendant came to the market in the enduro space. So, yeah, I think it it's it's certainly a product that makes sense for the discipline of cross country racing. Yeah, I mean, if anything, it's 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 a little intriguing that SRAM chose to introduce Flight Attendant on longer travel bikes. Mm-hmm. Um, which, granted, longer travel bikes arguably need a little more help in terms of making them pedal efficiency. Yeah. Um, and the weight pedal efficiently. The, the weight obsession's less uh, obvious as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but however, it also seemed like that sort of thing made more sense or would have more appeal to the cross-country market because they are the ones who are kind of more fixated on having suspension only when they want it and not when they don't. Um, so the fact that we're now seeing this on shorter travel cross-country bikes is intriguing because, it's again, it just seemed like that was almost more of a natural fit. But maybe they were just sort of testing it out in sort of the longer travel disciplines to make sure it worked well. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, SRAM has not made any official announcements as far as cross-country flight attendant goes. Uh, I even asked uh, my PR contact there, and I got a very, very – kind of succinct no comment mm. uh reply mm. um but it it's very clearly done yes um or at least very close to being done mm-hmm. and uh, i would have to imagine that we're going to see an official announcement for this very soon yeah uh also related to that fork i mean they we've seen this since cape epic but that the forks that they've been running uh are not the same forks that are, are currently on the market uh the most obvious detail is a, a more heavily machined crown which tells us that that's it's a new model, uh, and based on the fork on the specialized Epic World Cups, uh, which SRAM have gone very quiet on when I asked them about this, uh, but it's that fork on that production bike that is currently on the market matches the fork that's being raced in the World Cups. So it too has the machine crown, and uh, yeah, the that fork is 110 mil with a 32 mil stanchions, which is not a product that Tram currently has on their website. So uh, I think it's uh, perhaps I'm riding the new product that we don't know anything about yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I dare say that's probably very likely. Yeah. So. Yeah. Anyway. So yeah, I think that's interesting because there were definitely rumors that Tram would walk away from 32 mil stanchions and that it would all be about the the larger 35 mil stanchions moving forward. Uh, and that seemed to make sense as travel was going up. You know, 100 mil travel fork probably is probably not a very long future for for that length of suspension fork. Uh, and but yeah, it's interesting to see that they seem to be offering the 32 mil still and perhaps in longer travel than before. Which is nice for the the weight weenies. Yeah, I I, uh, I actually posed this question to Fox not too long ago because uh, when we were watching the racing in Nova Mesto in the Czech Republic, um, I was noticing that most of the men's elite field were running um, like for the Fox sponsored athletes anyway. They were running the thirty four, the slightly bigger and slightly heavier model that they have. Um, but there were some men on the 32 and seemingly most of the women's field were on their, the smaller and lighter 32. Um, so I think Fox has shown that there is still a market for a 32 mil stanchion cross country fork, uh, particularly if you can make it lighter. Mm-hmm. And I would have to imagine that RockShox wants a piece of that market for themselves if they can. So, yeah. um, not entirely surprising. Um, I will be very, very surprised if someone reverts back to a 28 mil stanchion someday, like back in the early Judy and Sid days and stuff like that. That seems very unlikely because mm. those forks were noodles. How, anyway. how compliant? 
<laughs> yes, indeed. How compliant. Uh, but uh, another interesting thing that we saw from the World Cup was uh, it's pretty dramatic, actually. At the start of the U23 men's race, uh, there's a Swedish rider, uh, Jakob Soderquist. My apologies if I'm butchering your name. Um, he was riding on um, uh, an ARC-8 Evolve FS. It's a kind of lesser-known uh, Taiwanese-based brand. And at the start, uh, the underside of his bottom bracket shell basically just sort of completely blew out, uh, which left him and his crankset laying on the ground. Um, and bottom half of his bottom bracket shell was basically nowhere to be seen. Have we ever seen anything like this before? Like, that was bizarre. It's it's the most dramatic frame failure I've seen of memory, other than, like, you know, the the downhillers hitting into a tree at 40k an hour and the front end snapping off. Um, but this wasn't that and yeah the whole bottom bracket shell just falling out of the bike is 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 nothing but funny to me um it's obviously I mean, very dangerous hurt. and worrying but uh yeah but also just such a dramatic failure that you kind of can't help but laugh it was pretty insane i like i i certainly have never seen anything like that before um and uh, you know arc 8 again it's a lesser known brand but they are not necessarily new to the scene they've been around for a few years now uh, the person behind it has done a bunch of design work and engineering work for other brands in the background. So I don't know if this was like, I, I mean, clearly there was something wrong, but I don't know if it was a design issue or a manufacturing issue or whatever, but, uh, holy crap, that bike did not fare well under no. the initial start pedal. Yeah. I mean, power. as you just said, we, we don't know what the cause was, but I really wouldn't be surprised if this bike had seen some previous trauma in that area, like a, 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 a substantial hit to the crank set or something like that, that had cracked it and that this rider just kept riding it, ignoring all the noise because uh, that's a very heavily reinforced area of the bike. Like there's normally Usually. a lot of material there. So for it to just kind of like fall off dramatically kind of makes me think that it had been failing for a while. When I seen it, it sort of had me thinking, and granted, I'm not all that au fait with uh, off-road mountain biking and all that sector, so uh, forgive me if this is a bit of a silly question, but... But on-road mountain biking you're into, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, on-road yeah. mountain biking. <laughs> okay, good. Just yes. The more I try not to sound silly, the more I sound silly. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, the point I was going to get to is, like, there's no, like, UCA frame approval, and I... Also, I'm aware that, you know, frame approval from the UCI doesn't necessarily mean that it's all that safe. It just means that it complies with their regulations in terms of frame dimensions and angles and that. Um, but there is there is nothing like that off-road, is there? No, not that I'm aware of. Um, I, I, if, I'm sure the UCI would love to regulate mountain bikes in the same way that it regulates the road bikes, but... At this point, like, I don't even know how they would bother to do that. Like, there's just no way they could, like, that, that all of those horses have left the stable a long time ago. The stable has burned down. Like they are not getting those horses back in the stable. Um, but yeah, as you said, Ronan, I don't, I don't know if that would have even, I don't know if a, if a UCI certification would have even had an effect on this sort of thing. Like it just clearly well, seems like if the stick again, was either, in the right place, it might've held the bottom racket together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 So, so it's either what Dave was saying that, you know, maybe something had happened to this frame already or uh, possibly some manufacturing defect or some design issue. Uh, we, we really just don't know. We have no idea. Um, yeah, so there, 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 it's uh, it's not that I think that the UCI could have prevented this from happening. <laughs> it more just struck me that such a process 
you know, that's what I'm dealing with day in day out on on the roadside over here, and you know, constantly looking at uh, which frames have approval and which frames are prototype status, and what the differences are between those uh, being approved and being a prototype, and that, and really, it means very little. But um, it just struck me when I seen that. Well, actually, there's nothing on on the mountain bike side. Mm. I like I'm it. Not saying there should be UCA. I hope mm. you're not listening. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, hopefully, it stays that way. <laughs> Maybe we should cut that whole section out and just give them many ideas. <laughs> oh, it's fine. They don't listen to this podcast anyway. I think. Maybe. Um, <laughs> but uh, Ronan, I mean, I know you're not terribly comfortable talking about mountain bike stuff, but I know that one thing you are comfortable talking about is uh, nitty gritty optimization stuff, which. Uh, I know you did an awful lot of for this time trial attempt that, well, this successful time trial attempt, I should say, that you did this past weekend. Um, how, how on earth did you figure out what you were going to be using for this north to south? Was it north to south or south to north? North to south, I think. No, south to north. Okay. How how did you figure out this end-to-end Irish time trial thing? Yeah, and why mm, did you well, why did you decide to do the uphill direction? <laughs> good question I'm not that good going downhill uh, uh, I should say the more I listen to you guys talking about mountain bike tech the more fa- like flight attendant like the, the first thing that comes into my mind when you guys say those words is which one of my bikes would I have to sell to get one of these things and then when I realize all of my bikes is the answer I, I usually pass on it but um, yeah maybe, maybe one day uh, but yeah, going back to what I am more comfortable talking about, um, how did I decide the route? I, well, for anybody who's been on escapecollective.com today, they may have seen a, uh, a masked, uh, indoor rider on the, on the homepage there wearing a, a, a paint suit and VR goggles. Um, and basically, yeah, the, 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 the single part of this route that I had a big question mark over uh, was on the other side of the island, a seven-hour driveway. So it wasn't really all that feasible to go down and check it out myself. So I f- heard about Verzoom uh, and VZ Fit, which is a meta Oculus headset-based fitness app. It's kind of like a fun at-home fitness app that you can you can sort of you know do all different types of exercises. One of the things you can do is you can connect it to a smart trainer. Um, and you can use Google Maps to upload routes to Google Maps and then download a KML file and upload that KML file to VZ Fit. And then VZ Fit will take a Google Street View of every section of that route, basically, and transform that into a route that you can then ride with interactive you know, gradient simulation and all that based on GPS data. And you can... Yeah, I meant that I could ride a route 500 kilometers away from the relative discomfort of my own garage. This this sounds like something that is a few years ahead of what pro teams are probably going to start doing for for course. I mean, yeah, uh, I mentioned because, that in the article, yeah. like how long before we see teams using that. And the answer sort of is that it's already been done and that we, we tried to use this for reconning the final three kilometers of each stage of the Ross, which uh, Escape covered recently. Um, it's a little bit impractical at the moment in that you either need someone on a trainer pedaling away to make your VZ Fit avatar move along the course and you can see the street, the street View version of the route, uh, or you have to sit there and use the, 
the hand remotes to wave your hands back and forth to, <laughs> to power to power this like buggy thing that you can also do the courses on. So um I had thought about, you know, was there some way you could hook up a speed sensor to a cordless uh, screwdriver or something like that, but <laughs> I never actually tried it out, but I'm sure you could hack it some way. But I mean it actually, yeah, like within half an hour of getting on riding this thing, I already had made a decision about which of the two routes I had in mind would I would I take. Um so it's actually you know, I I, I don't think it's you know, you're not going to be doing massively intense workouts or interval sessions with a, a, a an Oculus headset on yet. I don't think. I, I think that's pretty certainly going to damage it if you're sweating enough. Um, but you know, for a change of scenery, like switching out Zwift for Google Street View, it it's quite nice for a short endurance or recovery ride, and it it's actually pretty. I, I enjoyed it. Did it a couple of times. Uh. Moving away from that a little bit, but uh, how do you go sitting in a time trial position for 15 or so hours? Like, how many times did you adjust said position during the 15 hours? During the said 15 hours, I only once adjusted my cleat. Uh, uh, yes. I would have put money on I it being decided, the cleat. I, I only decided to change those shoes three or four days before it did the ride. So that's my excuse this time. Okay. What speed uh, were you I, going I, when you did that? <laughs> um, I mean, by the time it was funny, I said slowed right down. But starting, I was trying to hold as much speed as I could to get it done without without losing speed. Mm. Yeah. Uh, for for the benefit of our listeners here who who can't see Ronan on our screens here, uh, I should just point out that Ronan is actually in a time trial position right now. That's how his desk <laughs> is configured. <laughs> so he's just like that all the time. Mm. Well, I, I am since Sunday. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Most people have uh, monitor raised like blocks that raise their monitors up. Ronan actually has one that drops it. A negative, <laughs> negative rise <laughs> monitor stand. Right. Yeah. Because uh, his his desk, the level of his desk is actually lower than the seat of his chair. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it, the, crucially, the keyboard is not more than eight hundred and thirty millimeters in front of the bottom bracket for the swivel chair that I'm sitting. Oh, in. So okay. It's, good. Uh, good. It's UCI legal. Good, good. Okay, that, that's that's important. Um, <laughs> so once you once you figure out the course, then how did you how did you make some decisions on your equipment? Then at that point, uh, equipment wise, well, I already sort of had the basis in place from a couple of record times I did last year. Uh, I was using a Factor Hanzo time trial bike, but um, you know, while I what I did those attempts last year, I certainly the position wasn't all that sustainable. So I pretty much spent the entire winter optimizing my position. I think we talked about it on this podcast before about how i used google meet to like meet with myself on a different computer and get two angles and sometimes three angles of of my position just to give me a sort of 360 view on what that was like there um and a lot of it was based trial and error and and mostly just on feel like you can't really over um or you can't really undersell how important just how you feel on a bike is and i know maybe that might not be you know the the best way for most or for some people to set up their bikes but for for any experienced riders out there you know we can we can go to bike fitters and that and you know i definitely recommend that that would be a starting point but quite often i find that i just you know adjust the position to what feels better and that's very much what i did especially on a time trial bike when you're in such an extreme position like the angles and that don't really work the same uh, i don't think so you know uh, the big thing about a time trial position i think is just hamstring uh, flexibility um, and 
you know, obviously you're trying to get as aerodynamic as possible also, but start with comfort and then work towards aero afterwards. And I, it was, I was, you know, one of the things I was most happy about on Sunday was just how comfortable I was in the time drop position. And it sort of just came together over the past month or so, having spent a long, long time working on it. Uh, what hurt the most? Um, like, I mean, it was just normal ride a bike for 15 hours pain. There wasn't really any... Oh, okay. So everything. Okay, good. All right. <laughs> yeah, every, every, everything, yeah. It's not like... I did a did a time trial record last year, and it was five and a quarter hours, and I, I couldn't pee properly for a week. Oh. Uh, so there was there was nothing like that. Uh, that's mm. really not good. Yeah. Um, so... Less than ideal. Pee. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, the... the I think the most annoying thing about the position was that uh, I hadn't worn, I decided not to wear like mitts or gloves. And so my wedding ring was just like knocking on the extensions for the entire day uh, and rattling. Uh, And at the start when I didn't know what was rattling, that was very annoying. And then when I found out it was my ring, it was like even more annoying because the more more tired I got, the less I could stop it from happening. Um, What did you decide on for things like uh, so yeah, your your position was nailed down at that point. So what did you do as far as uh, like drivetrain and wheels and tires and that sort of thing? Uh, tires was a last minute decision. Um, I have Conti's GP five thousand TT tires, uh, which I didn't think would be a great option for a five hundred and seventy kilometer ride, given how light they are. Um, and in the end up, I put a STR. 5000 STR on the rear 28 mil and I stuck with the TT up front and it survived the full 570 kilometers without any po- and I've already done a few time trials on it so I was pleasantly surprised how that tire given how light and you know it's built for speed not really um durability so happy with that um wheels I had the Princeton Carbon Works wake uh is it 7580 tri-spoke I can't remember the exact numerical name part of that name um and a black ink zero disc at the rear um and then drivetrain wise i well i think the the thing that i liked most about this bike was the mish pistard air track crank that i had uh on the bike which is like a much more aerodynamic looking uh, you know didn't actually test it but looks a lot more aerodynamic uh 165 mil length but Obviously, being a track crank, the Q factor is much narrower, 138 mil. Um, obviously, also the chain line is, uh, you know, it, it's it's narrower also. So that did limit me to running a 56 tooth chain ring, but that was kind of what I was going to run anyway, given the amount of climbing on this course. Um, and Pyramid Cycle Designs actually made a, a 144 BCD chain ring, narrow road one by narrow wide ring for that track crank um and they they stock they got a that's a that, that's a stock product for them so um i thought that was quite quite neat uh and then on the actual chain i i again i, I had two chains uh one silka hot melt chain just if it was going to be a you know a, a good day um and i also had uh, my usual sort of time trialing and training chain that I wax and clean anyway, but had that stripped down and had it applied with a replacement bottle of Ceramic Speed's UFO Wet 
Uh, we discussed that previously on the podcast also, and uh, my sort of underwhelming experience previously. Yeah. Um, <laughs> since then, ceramic speed have assured me that you know we got uh, basically a faulty batch uh, in that in that sample that we were trying, uh, and so they replaced that. I had to send back the the, the previous bottle. They replaced it now, and I used that for the first time on Sunday. Perhaps a risky strategy, but. Uh, yeah that was what i did in a way um and the first mo- most of the first 200 kilometers was either raining or very very wet roads and i got about 270 kilometers into the ride before i had to apply any sort of wet loop to that chain which to me was a vast vast improvement over previous experience with that with that loop so uh, yeah, and, and about- not, i, I want to try it again in wet conditions before i make a final judgment but mm seems like there's definitely something different you know given yeah. that the last time i used that stuff it lasted 70 kilometers yeah and i a, had the same experience difference. i'm a little hurt that ceramic mm. speed didn't uh haven't haven't uh asked me to send my bottle back they just uh that's all right <laughs> <laughs> well maybe they don't maybe they don't think you're going to be riding more than 70 kilometers in the wet dave yeah it was a one-off that i actually got caught in the rain and that i then found out that their <laughs> wet lube didn't work as claimed so uh, let's not repeat that <laughs> Well, Ronan, that sounds like quite the ride for sure. Congratulations mm-hmm. to you. And it's pretty awesome that you're doing that for such a worthy cause. Um, but yeah, definitely head over to escapecollective.com for the full write-up on Ronan's ride. And, uh, and, there's, and no, his- there's no secrets on there. This, my every, Everything that I knew about this ride was in there, including CDA, everything. No, no, no wattage figures. Everything we have is in there. Mm, yeah, so just go, go ahead over there if you want to just fully nerd out. Quick question. Final question mm. on this. Uh, how many uh, beta fuel gels did you take <laughs> in the 15 hours? Um, I, yes, restricted the new Tropic ones big time. I was having beta fuel, uh, but yeah, I was using Connecticut energy gels instead on, okay. on Sunday. All right. Uh, and, although I, I do have a question for SIS and that it's kids sports day at school on Friday. And I'm wondering if the new tropics, is there like a lower age limit that you can. <laughs> oh man. My, my daughter really wants a medal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the likes parents go. <laughs> we'll we, we'll, we'll check in with you that on that next a, week. That is a joke. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure. Sure. It is. Sure. It is. Um, all right. Well, um, Dave, uh, for kind of the last thing I want to talk about on the show today, um, I want to touch on something I noticed from uh, your quite impressive mountain of coverage from the Handmade Bicycle Show Australia. Um, and this is something that you and I have discussed a fair bit. Uh, Rotor and I can't remember if you and I have discussed it, but um, we already know that SRAM's universal derailleur hanger format has gotten quite popular for mountain bikes. Um, and for obvious reasons, I mean, all those brands want at least the ability to run their new transmission stuff. Um, and we're certainly starting to see it now on sort of the, the latest crop of gravel bikes, uh, to, you know, certainly for all the, uh, all the riders that want to run mullet transmissions on those things, uh, from SRAM. Um, but we're starting to see it a little bit more on the road too. Um, and I did notice that a couple of the custom bikes that were on display in Australia had that. Um, did you talk to anyone there? about uh, sort mm. of where UDH might be going for drop bar road bikes? Uh, I did, and it was going to... One of the conversations with Darren Baum of Baum Cycles was going to be in a special podcast episode 
dedicated to all things Handmade Bike Show. Uh, and that episode is not happening because uh, turns out I can't read sound levels. And uh, a lot of the <laughs> no. a lot of the audio oh, no. clips were blown out in the wind and and all that. So unfortunately, that that didn't happen. Uh, so it's all in my head instead. And um, but yeah, Darren Darren did share with me that the UDH he believes makes sense for gravel bikes, and he's already started to use it there. But the the next uh, and keep in mind, Darren's normally you know, not one to jump on trends. He'll, he'll normally see the trend first and then spend three years trying to figure out how to do it better. Uh, but yeah, he's uh, he's reluctant for it with road because he says the, the width actually isn't ideal. So the dropout width is sort of uh, wider than than you really want on a road bike. And what that presents as an issue is uh, is heel rub with a, with a, sh- a short chain stay. So yeah, that's sort of the... I would say from what I've heard and what I've seen and what actually makes sense is that sort of the limitation here is that that UDH design is quite wide. And when we're talking about bikes with short change days, which are specifically road bikes, uh, yeah, it's it remains to be seen as to whether that'll actually be adopted. Um, yeah. How short are we talking here? Like just thinking that change days are sort of growing in a way. What? Sort of length are you talking? I mean, most most disc brake road bikes are around the four ten, four fifteen these days. Uh, is yeah. that is that what you mean when you say short? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think anything shorter than that sort of these days is asking for trouble with with wider rear ends the way they are. But it's, uh, yeah, maybe a four or five. But yeah, you know, we're certainly not seeing Pinarello three nine five length chainstays anymore on on modern road bikes. So. Uh, yeah, that that's something that that's interesting to me, and and what I've heard rumor wise is that SRAM doesn't intend to do like a road version of UDH, like a narrower version. They just UDH is universal trailer hanger, and they they truly mean that it is a universal trailer hanger. They intend it to be uh, the one solution for all. So, yeah, I, I think it's interesting. I think when we do start to see mainstream brands adopt UDH onto road bikes, then that would be a sign that it's. It's happening, but right now I'm I'm skeptical as to whether we'll see it move past gravel bikes. Well, I uh, one of the bikes that I'm testing right now is uh, that new Esprit from Rita. Mm-hmm. And granted, that's not like a pure, pure road racing bike. They, they kind of bill it more as an all-road bike. Um, but that bike actually does have UDH on the back of it. And it's something that you can visually get away with a little bit more on a carbon bike, I think. Um, you've got a little bit more freedom to kind of like, you know, manipulate things and, and kind of shape tubes and that sort of thing. Um, I can definitely see how heel rub could be an issue on a metal bike mm. with UDH. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, I have definitely heard from a handful of product managers that, um, yeah, as you said, Dave, SRAM does intend for UDH to be truly that, to, to be truly universal. There's not going to be a road variant, um, SRAM clearly is interested in getting more road brands to use UDH, however. Um, and on the road, of course, the motivation there would not be to be able to run their new transmission stuff because you're not going to be seeing mullet transmission stuff on a road bike. Um, however, just the fact that they are uh, gently nudging brands to consider using UDH on their road bikes – uh, that suggests to me that they 
if they are not already testing it, if they're not already developing, they certainly are looking at that style of attachment for a new generation of road rear derailleur. Yeah. And and the mountain bike world had happened very quickly. Like we saw it, it was like three for years sure. of UDH frames being a thing and, and Tram pitching it as kind of like them being the savior to the the there being a different derailleur with every bike. You know, it's like we've done this nice thing, we've created this fifteen dollar derailleur hanger that you can buy anywhere and it'll fit your new mountain bike. And then within three years, and, it's like, oh, you know. And by the way, here's yeah, this Trojan horse. Yeah, exactly. Here's this T-type derailleur that uh, you didn't see coming. And your bike works with it. Uh, so, yeah, we're suddenly seeing that in the gravel space. Um, um, basically, every new gravel bike I've seen released in the last few months seems to have UDH fitted. And the bikes we've seen upcoming from Unbound have UDH. And a lot of bikes at the Handmade Show had UDH in, in the gravel space. Uh, that's happening. Uh, but in the road, uh, yeah, I think as soon as we start to see some of the more prominent road brands adopt this, then you know what to expect. I feel like it's just going to take one. It's just going to take mm-hmm. one of big brands to jump on it, and then it's all in. Yeah, yeah. So, and given given the partnerships, I would say probably someone like Cervelo or Trek, given the the, the World Tour partnerships there, I'd say they're probably the the first brands if it were to happen. Um, but yeah, I think the tech makes sense. I think that T-type derailleur does make sense on the road. It's It's got a narrower sure. profile. It sits more in line with the, the back end of the bike. And honestly, if you do crash on it, you drive side down, the derailleur itself is fine. Uh, and it would protect the frame. I think we'd see fewer bike changes as a result of it in, in a racing situation if, if and when it does happen. But uh, mm. anyway. Well, I think... I think uh, I think we can agree that whatever the timeline might end up being, I feel like it's a foregone conclusion at this point that UDH is coming for the road. It's just a matter of when. Mm. Okay. Interesting. I think anyway. I mean, if you if you disagree, certainly now is the time to chime in. No, I mean, I've I've said my I've said my piece, which is just yeah, I I'm still a little bit skeptical just based on on the general width of it, but yeah, as you say, James, oh, I, I'm I, sure manufacturers will figure out how to how to cleanly integrate that. I didn't say I wasn't skeptical. Okay. I just said that I'm pretty confident that it's coming. Yeah, so. yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> I I do agree with that. So my my experience is if we're having this conversation, it's it's coming. Are you are you saying everything no. that gets discussed on this podcast ends up happening? No, I'm saying everything that <laughs> everything that cyclists disagree over should oh, okay. shouldn't happen. Eventually, does happen. Oh, okay, all right. And then we just disagree over whether we need it or not. All right. Oh well, we should probably have an argument about whether I need a CNC machine. <laughs> so I'd, I'd like to conjure that. <laughs> oh man! All right. Well, uh, Dave, we can we can save that for another episode, maybe a little right. bit closer to your birthday. Good to your Good. birthday. We'll, we'll we'll put that on the calendar. Um, all right, well, uh, let's go ahead and wrap up this episode because we, of course, are running a little bit long because there's never any shortage of tech things to talk about. So we'll reserve our PSA stuff for next week, perhaps. Uh, actually, speaking of next week, uh, Ronan and I will be at the Eurobike trade show in Frankfurt, uh, Germany. So uh, we will likely have a... Uh, I guess an on-site episode coming from from the Eurobike trade show. So uh, for regular listeners, just bear in mind that show may be a day late. We'll see how that goes uh, because the show doesn't really open until Wednesday. And uh, normally we record on Tuesdays and we're not going to bother recording a Eurobike special on Tuesday if we hadn't actually seen anything at the show yet. So anyway, 
Stay tuned for a special episode, maybe even more than one episode. We'll see next week. Uh, so, so keep you keep your ears open for that one. Um, anyway, thanks as always for listening to Geek Warning. Uh, again, we don't run any ads, so we do rely on your memberships to keep this whole thing running. Uh, so if you have not already signed up for the Escape Collective, please head over to the site and do so. Uh, if you have, thank you very much for your support. We really do appreciate it. Um, uh, another thing that is very helpful for us is if uh, if you have not yet left us a rating and review on iTunes, uh, please do so. Five stars only, please. Five. Nothing but fives. Uh, because, again, that does uh, help people – help more people find the show, uh, which does help us out as far as our, our visibility on the platform. So, uh, yeah, please go ahead and do that as well. So, anyway, uh, with that all said, we will see you next week. Cheers. Cheers.